Well, happy 4th of July. Um, I almost went and out of habit put on a ton of sunscreen, but was glad that I didn't have to do that today. Um, you know, having lived overseas for 10 years, um, man, I, I just remember the first time coming back and being uh, in a worship service after not having been in America. Um, it was pretty special. Uh, you know, we live in a great country, and I know we're all thankful for that. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Um, you know, this 4th of July is about freedom, really. Uh, that's what we're celebrating, freedom as a country. But Jesus gets to the heart of what true freedom is in John chapter 8 when he writes this. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching... You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and today we come to a place where uh, Jesus calls us not to trust in our own external righteousness, what, we could, what could become legalism, but in his perfect work on our behalf. And in this context, uh, Jesus talks about his view of scripture. You know, people in our culture, I think, uh, struggle with authority. I think we've seen that, especially over the last year. Um, so I want to point us especially right at the beginning to two key verses. Uh, verse 8, where Jesus says, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And then look down at verse 13 of chapter 7. Thus you nullify, what? The word of God. By your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. What, what Jesus is specifically speaking about is the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures. However, the insights that he gives are, are rightly applied to all of scripture. The entire Bible. The, the, the Bible says from beginning to end that, that all authority belongs to God. The Bible never claims to have authority in itself, for itself. Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And so we talk about the authority of the Bible. Uh, when we talk about that, that's really shorthand for the authority of God. God the Father, God the Son. And you've got this on your outline if you're taking notes. I hope you are. It says, when we say the Bible has authority, we mean God uses the Bible to express his authority and truth. To express his authority and his truth. The authority of the Old Testament was, was recognized by the people of Israel, by Jesus. In fact, Jesus taught that he himself would be the fulfillment of the promises that God made in the Old Testament. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The, the entire Old Testament points us to Jesus. He's the theme of the Bible, the scarlet thread, if you will, that's woven from Genesis to Revelation. And in order to make us righteous before God, he had to live a life of complete obedience to the laws before God. 
it's a myth that the New Testament books were arbitrarily chosen by the Emperor Constantine. I don't know if you've heard that or not, but by the fourth century, uh, the books that would become the New Testament had already been circulating throughout the Roman Empire. And they were widely recognized as, as being authoritative from God. The early church believed the writings could be traced back to Jesus' disciples. And the church also believed that these writings were consistent with the teachings of Jesus and with his life. So at the top of your outline, you have this. Up to now, Jesus focused on proclaiming the gospel and on those who wanted to hear. Jesus wasn't afraid of anyone, but confronting the religious elite wasn't on his agenda until now. Having preached around Galilee and after sending his disciples out to preach, the time has come for Jesus to turn his attention toward Jerusalem. But it's not until chapter 10 that he journeys there. Like in these verses, what Jesus does is to confront various factions more assertively who come to him from Jerusalem. So let's read God's word together. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. What they come, uh, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about the hypocrites, about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. This is God's word. Did you know that there are over 50, I don't know, even, I couldn't even count the number of translations that we have in the English language? We have an embarrassment of riches and so we have no excuse to be ignorant of the Bible. You know, I, I was just looking through the different translations and came across a new one, maybe you haven't heard of, kind of in English. It's the Emoji Bible. 
Yes, you can really figure it out with emojis. Uh, I don't think it's the whole Bible, but anyway, it was, it's, just, it's, re, it's, it's embarrassing that we have the time to do that and the time to even try to read it. I was trying to decipher some of these things like, what in the world? <laughs> and especially when compared to the rest of the world. I, I, here's a quote from the American Bible Society. They say that there are 3,100 of the world's 6,900 known language, language groups still do not have a completed New Testament translation. 26% of them, close to 2,000, have no Bible portion at all in their language. That's why we here at Claremont Emanuel put a priority on sending missionaries to unreached people language groups so that they can do translation at the same time that they're doing church planting. That's important. That's why we've committed 20% or so of our budget to making that happen, to supporting our missionaries. When Mortimer Adler was asked why he didn't include a Bible in the set of books called the, the Great Books of the Western World, he said, because every educated person in America, he said he thought every American would have a Bible in their home. And we might have one in our home, but the question is, are we reading it? And even more importantly, are we doing it? Jesus here is telling us in these verses that we're looking at this morning, some important things about his relationship with the scriptures that translate into what our relationship with the Bible ought to be. And the first thing we see, number one on your outline, is that we must submit to God's authority. What these Pharisees were really trying to do is to discredit Jesus. They wanted to kill him, but they felt first if they could discredit him, it would make killing him easier. And they would say, if you're really a rabbi, as holy and righteous as you say you are, then you should know that you don't eat without first ceremonially washing your hands. Why are your disciples not doing that? Certainly, if you're a rabbi of any, of any knowledge, of any status, you know that, that people are following you and you are doing the wrong thing and not teaching them to do this. And in verses 6 through 13, five times Jesus criticizes what he calls the tradition of the elders which is what the Pharisees were following. Now, we all know that traditions can be a great thing. Think of today, the 4th of July, and all the traditions that we have. You have a tradition of, of maybe hanging out with your family and friends, of eating a hamburger or a hot dog or watching fireworks or uh, maybe watching the Padres come close to winning. We have a tradition of meeting together on Sunday mornings. That The time, as we know, has flexed a little bit here and there over the last year, but, but generally you know we have a tradition of meeting together on Sunday mornings. That's a great tradition. The tradition of the elders were not good traditions. They were a set of rules that grew up around the Old Testament scriptures, but they weren't in the Bible. For example, one of the Ten Commandments is the Sabbath to keep it holy, 
to set it aside as a day of rest. And so practically, what does that mean? Well, the Pharisees and those who came up with the tradition of the elders, as it was called, wrote 200 specific rules about what that meant. I can't even imagine that. It would just become a burden knowing that you had to know these and follow them. And if you broke one of them, you weren't, you weren't keeping the Sabbath. It, it, it missed the spirit of what was being commanded of us in the first place. The problem was that these rules, even though they weren't in the Bible, were treat, being treated with the same authority as the Bible. And even, they overshadowed God's law. And, and that's what Jesus is criticizing. And because these rules were so specific to what God's law was all about, that's what Jesus was after. That's what he was saying is wrong. They were so specific, they tended to distract people from the real thing, from the importance of the law. And Jesus gives two examples. So the first example is the washing of hands. And this has nothing to do with washing hands before you eat so that your hands can be clean. This was about ritual purity. That's what he was talking about. That's what the law, that's what the, the, the rule of the elders was saying. In the Bible, the only ones that were told to wash their hands were the priests. In Exodus 30, the priests were told to wash their hands before leading in worship. And the symbolism of that was important, but it was lost in all the rules. The symbolism was that we need to come before God who is pure by purifying ourselves. It was just symbolic. It was symbolic like, like the bread and the, and the cup that we took this morning is symbolic. But it was, it was symbolic in the sense that it was almost like the New Testament equivalent of confession, of sin. We're, we recognize, Lord, that we're unclean before you. It was an important part of Old Testament worship uh, in, in that sense. But by the time of Jesus, what was called the tradition of the elders and, and the washing of hands was washing anything that might have been touched by anyone unclean. If you were in the marketplace and bumped up against somebody who was a Gentile, you were unclean. You had to wash your clothes for that reason. And you had to wash all the utensils. Look at verse four. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash because they bumped up against all these Gentiles. And they observed many other traditions such as washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. And then verse five, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So even though it wasn't in the Bible, the, the tradition of the elders had, become an, had turned into an obsession of washing, washing everything. These Pharisees were devoting themselves to man-made rules and keeping them as, as much as they could. And they believed that in the keeping of them, they would be saved. They would go to heaven. They would be keeping the law. Another example Jesus used is, starts in verse 10. Look at verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. So what this was was a loophole. So you didn't have to help others, especially your father and mother. You could buy a piece of property 
and you could declare it Corban. It's going to be dedicated to God. So if your father and mother come to you with a particular need, then you say, oh, I'd love to give it to you, but I can't because it's Corban. It's dedicated to God. So I have to live off the money of that. I'm sorry. I can't help you. Yeah, it'd be so ridiculous. It'd be like, your, like my dad coming and saying, hey, can I borrow your car? And I'm like, oh, no, it's Corbin. <laughs> Dedicated to God and to Dodd. You can't do it. It's only to this Dodd. No, that's ridiculous. That's how ridiculous this law was. It made no sense. And it specifically contradicted the biblical principle to honor your father and mother. And look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 13. And you do many things like that. In other words, I could give you dozens of examples. You're being fools. You're separating yourself from God when you think you're drawing close to God. In other words, if you give anything authority over the Bible, you fail to worship God. That's what Jesus is getting at. And what you're actually doing is creating your own God. The God of all these laws, they're becoming a God that you're worshiping. You're failing to recognize the authority of the Bible, and that's a failure to recognize God's authority. And so you have this on your outline. Jesus is saying that God's authority is equal to the Bible's authority. The words of the Bible are the words of God. And Jesus, think about this, Jesus based all of his actions and all of his words on the Bible. When Jesus was confronted with the most difficult situation that you can imagine and confront Satan, what does he say over and over in Matthew chapter 4? It is written. It is written. In fact, in Matthew 4, 4, you have this on your outline, it says this, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, every word of scripture is Jesus' food. It's his strength. It's his life. Even on the cross, when Jesus was going through the greatest agony of of pain that a body can experience, that a soul can experience, what comes out of his mouth? Scripture comes out of his mouth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quote from Psalm 22. And into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a quote from Psalm 31. Even in the most intense times, Jesus is quoting Scripture. And it's when we are in the most pressured situations that what we speak is what's really in our hearts. And what's in Jesus' heart is Scripture just flows out of him all the time. Part of following Jesus is following what was the basis of his life. And and, and, and we need to understand that should be the basis of our life. It's not about us accepting parts of the Bible, the parts we like, and doing away with the parts we don't like or ignoring the parts we don't like. Again, this is on your outline. We must be willing to adjust our thinking to the Bible even when it hurts, even when it's hard, even when we don't want to, even when we don't like what it says, even when it goes against our tradition. 
or our culture or what's popular at the time, even if it's against our friends, we're to follow God's word like Jesus did. And that's the only way to follow Jesus is to follow his word. The authority of God, the authority of Jesus, and the authority of the Bible all are intermingled. They all go together. You accept them all or you reject them all. And so we have to adjust our life to the scripture's authority. That's number one. Number two is that we learn about the the scriptures is that we must understand the purpose of the scripture. The purpose of the scripture. Look at verses six and seven. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That's a quote from Isaiah 29. And on your outline again, the purpose of the Bible is that God wants our hearts. So let me ask you the question this morning. Does he have your heart? I'm not talking does he have your intellectual assent. I'm not talking about just your actions. Actions are really important. Your intellectual assent is important. But I'm talking about what is the purpose of God's word is. Does God have your heart? God doesn't want us to be hypocrites. We don't want to be hypocrites. A hypocrite is a pretender. And we sure don't want that said of us. What Jesus says to pretenders when they say, Lord, look at all the things I've done in your name. Jesus says to pretenders, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoers. That said of us. A dear friend of mine who was on uh, my ordination committee was a man named Joe Bailey. Uh, who happened to write some books, and one of the books that he wrote, he had some poems, and, and this is one of the poems that, that he wrote. He said, Lord of reality, make me real, not plastic, synthetic, pretend phony, an actor playing a part, hypocrite. I don't want to keep a prayer list, but pray. I don't want to agonize to find your will, but to obey what I already know. To argue theories of inspiration, but to submit to your word. I don't want to explain the difference between eros and philos and agape, but to love I don't want to sing as if I mean it. I want to mean it. I don't want to think about, uh, think another needs me, but that I need him or else I'm not complete. I don't want to tell others how to do it, but to do it. To have a, to, to be right, but to admit it when I'm wrong. I don't want to be a census taker, but an obstetrician. Nor 
an, inv- an involved person, a professional, but a friend. I, I don't want to be insensitive, but to hurt where other people hurt. Nor to say that I know how you feel, but to say God knows and I'll try if you'll be patient with me. Meanwhile, I'll remain quiet. I don't want to scorn the cliches of others, but to mean, to mean, to mean everything I say, including this. We don't want to be hypocrites. And to add to all these additional rules and regulations like the traditions of the elders means that you think the purpose of the Bible is so that you can earn your own righteousness before God by all the things that you do. You know, there's, there's a reason that discipline, the word discipline and the word disciple look and sound like each other. Because discipline should be a part of what it means to be a disciple. But anything that we do that we think we're earning favor with God is a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't ever think that what you do gives you a better right standing before God. It doesn't. It can't. And people ask, well, why isn't God answering my prayers? Look at all I've done for God, and this is what I get back? Really? And to say that or to have that attitude completely misses the purpose of the Bible. Saying that or having that attitude smacks of of legalism. And, And that's law, not grace. The purpose of the Bible is that we would have an intimate love relationship with God. God wants us to obey him because he wants our heart. And so does he have your heart? I'll give you a great example of this. Right before the giving of the law, um, before God gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, in Exodus 19, God says, tells Moses to say to the children of Israel this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how, carried you, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, God says, he does not say, if you obey my law, then I'll love you. God does say, I will save you. I didn't save you because you obeyed the law. You didn't even have the law at this point. This is before the law. But I I brought you out of Egypt because I loved you. I had this covenant love. I've I've said this before. It's my favorite Hebrew word, three letters, hased. It means covenant love. God has this hased towards you, toward us. It's a covenant love. We cannot earn it. It was given before the law. 
Even in the Old Testament, we see the unmerited grace of God. In other words, what God is saying is, I want to have this intimate relationship with you. And so because of that, because we've established the relationship, now I want you to be obedient to me. Because that's the only way for us to go forward. That's what God says to us. And then the final thing we see in these verses is that the entire storyline of the Bible points to Jesus. How does obedience then lead to a love relationship? Well, think of when you love someone. When you love someone, you want to find out what, <clears throat> what, they, what they love. And you want to do those things for them. You want, to, you want to make that happen in their lives. And you want to find out what they detest. And you want to avoid those things. And, and they don't even feel like something you have to do, you do it because you love them and you want to communicate that love to them. You want their joy in life to come before yours. And that's just what you do when you love them. And so God wants our desire to be obedient, him to flow from that love relationship. It's not much of a relationship if, that we have here on earth with others if everything that if in a marriage relationship, if, if your spouse always agrees with you, there, there can be no room for disagreement. That's not much of a relationship. It's something, but it's not an intimate relationship. When we have a deep and intimate connection with God, it means that, that he can contradict us. That, that, that we can, he can contradict even deeply held convictions that we have. And we need to bring our will in line with God's. And so unless God can contradict you, you have a God that's created in your own image. You say, well, I like all these things about the Bible, but I don't like this. That's not the kind of relationship, a love relationship God's talking about having with us. If we give the Bible authority to tell us the stuff that we, that we don't agree with, and that's the only way that we've got to believe and follow the Bible. That's how God will speak to our hearts. That's how we will know joy and peace in our lives. It's out of love, a, a, a love that we have a desire to please God, to obey him. Remember that the traditions of the elders was a way to explain what the Bible meant, what the Ten Commandments meant. So it was absolutely shocking to the Pharisees for Jesus to say what he often said, and that's this, you have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus was saying, I'm the one who will interpret scripture. I am the one that tells you what the Bible means, not the tradition of the elders. That's not it. And the Pharisees were like, how dare he? Who does he think he is? In the upper room, Jesus says this to his disciples in Luke, in Luke 24. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Now listen to this. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Jesus is who the Bible is all about. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. Jesus. And he's saying in this passage from Luke, 
you have to understand this about me. I am the plot line that runs through the Bible. And this is the key to understanding the Bible. I'll give you an example of this. Joseph in the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories is Joseph. Uh, end of, at the end of Genesis, <clears throat> uh, he's sold into slavery by his resentful and jealous brothers, and they think he's going to die in slavery in Egypt. But the opposite happens. Instead of dying, he's, he's successful. He goes all the way to become prime minister of Egypt. In a sense, figuratively at least, he's sitting next to Pharaoh. And the brothers who betrayed him and sold him end up showing up and appearing before Joseph. And he forgives, this. He forgives them in this scene that's filled with pathos. Okay, so what are we supposed to get out of that? What are we supposed to learn from that story? What's it teaching us? That if someone tries to ruin our finances and kill us, that we're supposed to forgive them and not go and be like Joseph? Well, the primary lesson that we take from Joseph is that Jesus is the better and true Joseph. He was sold, not into slavery, but into real death for us. And rose up not just from slavery, but from death itself. And we're like Joseph's brothers. We're the people who turned our backs on him. We're the people who live as if sometimes he doesn't exist. We're the people who betrayed him. And he forgives us at an infinite cost to himself. And to the degree we see this, and it melts us, and humbles us. To that degree, we are empowered to go out and to be like Joseph. Forgive others when they don't deserve to be forgiven. And so you have this on your outline. Even though Jesus doesn't use the word free in this account, he has freed his disciples and us from the condemning rule of the Pharisees. When people are in a crisis, when they're lonely, when they're in jail, when they're in a hospital, the Bible is often the book they turn to to find hope. We all know it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me. When we despair, God's word it has the authority to give us hope. God's word spoke creation into existence and it convicts us of our sin. It gives us power when we're weak. It gives us guidance when we don't know what to do next. God's word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light to our path. It's the true story that gives meaning to our story. It's worth the time and the effort to read and to study God's word. Some people can complain about the time and effort that it takes, but what is genuinely worthwhile in our lives that doesn't take time and effort? Jesus. 
Listen to it in your car. Write it on cards and put them on your mirror and, and, and your refrigerator. Download an app on your phone and, and, and use the Bible app on your phone. Find a daily Bible reading program and, and follow it. Do whatever it takes to become a student of the word of God. Don't just wallow in this embarrassment of riches that we have. Study it, listen to it, memorize it, meditate on it, and most importantly, do it. That's what James says. Don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers of the word. Think about it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise that you are coming back. And when you do, sin and death will finally be defeated and the world will be made gloriously new and infinitely better than what we have right now and we can't wait. Father, thank you for this word in Mark 7 about your word. And we pray that you would help us to receive it with joy and as a gift and realize the gift we have in your word. It's not a burden. And it's because we see, of, of it that we see your son Jesus so clearly. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we trust that you've spoken to our hearts this morning. And if you've spoken to someone's heart for the first time that realizes now their separation from you that never realized it before, I I trust, Lord, that you're drawing them to yourself. May they respond in faith and take up your word and, and learn to love you and let someone know about it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And well, may God Himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our Master Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. He said it. He'll do it. Amen. Happy Fourth of July. Enjoy some good fellowship together.